Hello and welcome to Tamper Tantrum the 23rd. My name is Colin Harmon. I am your host as always for this evening. I've dragged along with me Mr. Layton. How are you Steve? I'm very good thank you Colin. Um, I didn't need dragging. I came. I came willingly. I dragged you. He dragged me sorry yes. Yeah so we're actually in the same place recording in the same house in different rooms which is kind of weird. Yeah. Well we've had to do that for a reason. We have, and a wonderful reason. Uh, the reason being that we have a, a special guest today, somebody that we've actually wanted to get on for a long, 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 long time. Uh, predominantly because of the fact that he ran, uh, to me, what was the, the, the standard bearer, we're going to say, of coffee podcasts. Is that fair? I think it's fair. It's so sad that it's in, in past tense was. You just ruined my surprise. I was like building up this like thing where you would then, I would be like, ladies and gentlemen, and people at the home would be like, who is it? Who is it? But now everybody knows who it is because you've just gone and talked. Because it's not going to be in the, in the show summary or in the tweets or anything like that. Yeah. <laughs> see, see always, always, with, always with a smart answer. That's always with a smarter answer. Ladies and gentlemen, Nick Cho. I'm going to do a little clapper now. Hi. I sound so crystal clear, it's amazing. I can't believe it. Before we go on, Nick, (laughs) I've got to kind of pick you up on what you just said. Is it in the past tense? Because I never felt it had completely... I always cross my fingers it might come back. I'd like to do it again. I I mean, for people who have heard me before, you might detect a little bit of uh, minor speech impediment on my voice, and it's actually a a real thing. I'm having um, a long sort of oral surgery situation. I was in a car accident when I was, I think, 11 or 12 years old. And um, now I'm 42, 41. And um, I'm finally having to deal with this. And so I have braces on my bottom teeth. I have a dental appliance. I'm actually missing three of my upper front teeth. And so I have a dental appliance that goes in. And so I'm kind of lispy. it's not enough. I mean, I really sh- shouldn't be so self-conscious about it. Obviously, it's not a huge impediment, but at the same time, it's just giving me time to focus on business and focus on you know what we're doing here in San Francisco. And so it takes a lot of time, as you guys know. Um, I think people underestimate how much energy and effort go into putting stuff, content out there. You know, so, why, why is there not another portal filter? Where is it? Why is it not out? But it, I, like, I know better than anybody, like, putting all that stuff out is, is a nightmare, and there's... So much post-edit work. I have to disagree. I, I, I don't ever encounter any <laughs> edit work whatsoever. No, I think no. you're both making it up, frankly. I've done hundreds of podcasts at this stage, and I've never had to do any editing, so I think you're just, yeah, you're just making that up. Yeah, yeah, we're not. We're not. So someday, someday, um, I, can't, I won't make any particular promises, but I, I do like the medium. I'm happy that you guys are doing it, and I'm happy to be here today. Um, through the magic of MP3, and uh, so someday, I do hope so. It's something someday. that I know that was really fundamentally my growing up in coffee was uh, the port filter. It kind of it, it created a community for me that I wasn't part of at the time, but I kind of felt part of. And and now I just go around and see my internet friends. A lot of it from from those original ones. So I definitely miss it. And anybody who hasn't listened to them is very stupid and should. <laughs> go, go, go back in time via the internet and, and dig them out now Nick you mentioned uh, briefly their business and um, 
that we call we in the we in the industry, the radio podcast industry, call that a segue, and that's a useful segue for me to ask you about how is business and how is the new shop that you've opened. I'm actually at the shop right now. I'm in the back, and so you're going to hear doors slamming and glasses breaking, and I think oh, Brenna's people dig that. They're grabbing milk or something like that. Who's that? Is that Brenna? Yeah, that's Brenna. And so um, I, I can't see around the corner. But uh, things have been good. We opened the cafe in September. And, you know, for us, it's, you know, the having a shop is everything. Sorry, Stephen. You know, but having the shop of your own and being able to come out and make coffee. I mean, Colin knows. It's, it's really... He doesn't. He doesn't know. It's not his shop. Like, I keep telling everybody, he's not his shop. It's our shop. <laughs> I come along and get to visit it and not have to do any of the work, but it's our shop. And I agree, it's cool. To, and I started with a coffee shop as well, Nick, so I did three years of owning a shop. You did? I didn't know that, yeah. really. Yeah, yeah, lots of people don't know that, and I love this story. I love it when he tells me about the shop, because oh. I imagine... Tell the story, Steve. God, tell the story. So I, I had this crazy idea back in the day, so it's 2000, that I was going to open a coffee shop, and um, I opened it in Stafford, which is the back end of nowhere, and... I'm sorry if anybody's listening from Stafford, but how did you find this? Um, but, like, it was a really small shop. We didn't have any chains at all. We only had tea rooms. There was no coffee shops, per se. And I opened up an espresso bar with a one-group Simonelli Oscar. Um, <laughs> I, I, I joke not. I mean, it took me, I don't know, it was about three, did four just go to the bathroom? <laughs> That's... <laughs> no, that wasn't... <laughs> Oh no! Okay, I actually, I actually just crept over to the sink to pour myself a glass of water, and I thought I'd gotten away with it, but obviously not. Mm-hmm. Uh, or else I took a piss, one or the other. <laughs> but yeah, I had the shop for three years. Hated every single moment of it. I, I barred more people than was allowed to come in. Um, That's my favorite bit. Yeah, I was the grumpiest <laughs> coffee shop owner ever. Um, customers used to come and ruin it for me. I'd be sitting in there having an espresso, chilling out, and then somebody would come in and want something. <laughs> it was really inconvenient. So uh, that's why I ended up having a roastery and going to the internet, because it was safer for my sanity. Uh... <laughs> cool, I didn't, I didn't know that. It reminds me of something that Pete Williams once said, that we were in the shop one day, and we were like trying to get something right and fix something, I can't remember, and then the customers came in and ruined everything, and then... They went away after we were exhausted, and he said, you know what would be amazing? If we had loads of money and no customers. That's a perfect coffee shop. That's so sad. That's so sad. Yeah. It is sad. I, the I need best it. part. It's true. He did I mean, mean I, it, but I, I sometimes I think different. that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Everyone's different in this regard, and I understand that there's all different personality types. I know that for... For me, I mean, I, I have as much trouble getting up in the morning when it's early as anyone else does. And sometimes it's cold and, you know, it, it it's, feels like forever to get to the shop. But once I'm there and once customers start walking in, I mean, I'm, I'm like a pig in, in mud. I mean, it, it's the best. It's the best feeling. Um, it's great. Just people coming in and making them something good and watching their eyes, you know, open wide. And Nick, you, you've never been to Stafford, have you? <laughs> I was going to say, we're in a pretty nice neighborhood here in San Francisco. It's very sunny out right now. I actually, just for you guys, I looked up. It's, um, it's 18 degrees and sunny today. Um, centigrade, wow. it's 64 Fahrenheit. Um, it's, it's a lovely, lovely day today here in San Francisco. And everyone's out in their Lululemon yoga pants and 
shirts, small clothing. It's wonderful. It's California, USA, USA. Wow. Yeah, it, it's not like that here, but we don't want to talk about that. No. Um, and then, like, what I saw of uh, of the shop online is, and the thing that caught my eye, and, like, you might say, think that I'm just saying this for the sake of it, but in my head, I have this list of places that I want to go to this year, and your place is definitely there. And I want to sit in one of the seats where you have your... <laughs> The, the seats at the bar with your your three Akaya scales and and, right. and then you'll come out and you'll make my coffee and then and we'll have a talk and I'll be like yeah this rocks and like how's that going is that because it's a brew bar and that was a very fashionable thing well at least over this side of the water maybe two three years ago and then it kind of fizzled out how is that experience going and how does that work in, within the dynamic of the shop well, I think that in, in the overall scheme of things, and, and obviously this is one of those things I could go on and on forever about, but um, when we were designing this space, it's a small space. I don't know how to translate um, 700 square feet into metric, but you know we have about 700 square feet plus another 100 in the back for a back room. So it's a fairly small shop. Um, it was never one that was going to have a lot of seating, and so... Um, how are we going to lay it out? And so a couple things came to mind right away. One was that we definitely wanted to have a, a, a brew bar set up. And this was something that I've sort of had in my mind for many, many years. And actually, um, to, be, to be completely open about it, um, a big inspiration came from seeing the bar at a shop called T-Smith in London. Mm-hmm. that I think a lot of us went to go see in 2010 when the WBC was there that year. And if you, if you look, like soon after that, Intelligentsia at their, some of their cafes started doing a larger kind of um, drain board type setup and a few other places as well. And, and for me, I wanted to be um, pretty, you know, coffee focused, but... Um, Almost as impressive as the, I mean, that one over there at T Smith is like ten meters long in my memory, and 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 you know, and a foot wide, and just this long drain board with hot water taps every meter or so, you know, and then people sat at stools and would come up and get and get tea. It was just a very unique experience, and you know, obviously London being a more tea centric place and tea progressive place than than spots in the states would be. Um, it was an inspiration, and so I wanted to integrate that. That's been really great. We were able to integrate the Kaya scales. Those folks have been great. Um, those sh- scales aren't cheap, and so to be able to get them sort of essentially sponsored by them has been really great. It's been a good partnership. They've been they've come by every so often um, and take pictures and, and, and chat. Um, so that's been fun, and, and, and when I was putting that together, I wanted it to be one with three seats to essentially mimic – the Brewers Cup set up because I'm glad I think you said I get that. To do that. I think I get to do that, right? You know. Yeah. Um, having, having put a lot of work many years ago designing that competition and seeing it come to fruition, I felt like it would be fun to kind of essentially create a Brewers Cup type setup because you know that's the thing that people forget about the Brewers Cup is that before we put that together, um, you know, people were doing manual brewing and, and pour over was starting to really catch on, but. You know, I think people actually take for granted a lot of the things that go into that. I mean, how, how did we know that people could actually be successful delivering three, you know, manually brewed cups of coffee brewed separately to, you know, within 10 minutes and give a presentation? It was a little bit of, you know, there was some testing involved, but all in all, um, it was a big question mark. 
but then people have been doing it a great job and so I've been pretty proud of that. So I wanted to kind of honor that legacy or whatever you want to call it and, and, and throw that in there. And then I'm sure you've also seen the pictures of the pineapple wallpaper with the bench in front of it. Yeah. That's I, been I, pretty fun. That's been pretty fun. It's become as a, I gotta, yeah, I gotta take a risk here, but I think you'll, you'll probably agree with me. It's become as iconic as, as the tiled floor at um, Intelligentsia Silver Lake. It's that kind of, you know, you go into Instagram and someone has taken a picture of those tiles. Well, now you get people going to your shop and taking pictures of their face in front of the pineapples. And I hope to be that <laughs> yeah, person someday. It, it, people's faces and also, I mean, it, again, I'll, I'll sort of um, reveal a little bit of the thinking behind that. That wallpaper was actually supposed to go on the other side of that hallway that um, you come up into the shop uh, into. And the idea being, you know, if you're sitting at that bench then you want something pretty to look at. But uh, you realize, you know, it's 2014 when we opened the shop, and the selfie thing is a thing, and it's not going away. And it's really about, for me, you know, what's better than giving something, uh, something to people that's pretty to look at? The better thing than that is give them something that makes them look more pretty. And so sort of providing that backdrop um, more than having it be something that is, like, on display I wow. think was the subtle difference. I've seen other spots that have nice wallpaper. Are you okay? Are you? Uh, did you actually plan that, or is? You see, my presumption was that it, it was just a happy coincidence that happened. But maybe you're even smarter than I thought you were in the sense that you actually you planned that in advance that that would become like a, a an iconic selfie wall. Well, here's what happened. Originally, that wall was going to have two like uh, permanently installed two top tables there are two tables with two seats each that were kind yeah. of you know basically because it's on a ramp um yeah, you wouldn't that, be able yeah. to have a traditional traditional setup and so it would have to be kind of affixed to the wall in some way yeah and to be i've never told this story but um to very few people anyway i had a visitor or visitors i should say the 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 morrisseys steven and jenny morrissey were visiting about two or three months before the shop was to open and i showed uh, them the, sh the space and, and you know, Stevens had a lot of nice things to say. And then I told him what I wanted to do with that ramp. He said, no, 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 put a, put a bench there, a long bench. And I said, Steven, not everything is intelligentsia Venice, you know, cause they have yeah. sort of that sort of seating in the front too. And he said, no, 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 think about it. Think about it. And I thought about it and I realized he was completely right because if we had gone with the original plan, very often, two people would take up that entire seating by one person being at each table, yeah. and then no one else wants to sit there, and it's a very, it would be very intimate, and so they would take over the whole thing, and very often, they would take it up and also be showing their back to the front door, and, is that, and Stephen's point was that. Was, is that really what you want to um, have as sort of the, the, what people see when they come into the shop or look peering into the shop? And so I kind of looked at him, and I wanted to kick him, because, I, you know, damn it, that's such a brilliant observation. Stephen's, um, Stephen's feedback is, is infuriatingly accurate. And it, the other yes. thing about Stephen is that he, he has uh, an admirable disregard for your feelings. <laughs> In the sense that, you know, he, will not, he won't beat about it, but you be like, oh, you bought that. That's really shit. You're going to look like an idiot when people see it. Who's this Stephen? Yes. Who's this Stephen you're talking about? Uh, is, is Stephen, Stephen Morrissey? No. The little one. Little Stephen. Steemo! 
Exactly, yeah, that's it. Oh, Steemo, sorry. I, I, I wasn't sure who you were talking about then. Now I know. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So when it, turned, when it turned into a bench, then absolutely the whole idea of having the, the you know, that's when everything changed and, and we did um, plan it out that way. It was absolutely going to be a spot where people took a lot of pictures and, and selfies and such. I, I guess we just didn't realize how, um, how popular it would be. I mean, we've just this past couple of weeks, I think a lot of been, a lot of people have been telling me that, you know, oh, it's the most famous wallpaper on Instagram, which is a complete overstatement. But then I start going through random people's feeds and then I see it there. It's the weirdest thing. Seriously. It's incredible. Yeah. Um, I think it's, uh, the other thing about benches is I'm not sure if, if the planning regulations are the same where you are, but I, I'm a big fan of benches because, um, if you if you have a planning designation that says you're only allowed like in, in in a retail setting in Ireland you're allowed to have up to four seats in a retail area before you have to apply for different planning permission to have more than that. Uh, a bench can be quite uh, it's open to interpretation how many people can fit on that bench. You can say yeah it's big enough right. for four people, so it's uh, they always come in handy for that. And then more people are people are more likely as well like you say to share them as well, so you get more people in. It doesn't scare people off. Um, I didn't one, love the idea of people putting their drinks or or things like on the bench next to their you know their their backsides on the bench. I thought that was a little bit strange, but it yeah. also feels very natural at the same time. Um, and so you know, I spent a lot of time thinking about the way that people you know, interact with spaces. The, the ramp itself that brings you into the shop is a really interesting sort of like idea um we didn't design it that way that's the way the shop came but for me it's a very gentle introduction to this space for somebody um they, they and being on a slope also helps slow them down physically and it makes the the coming into the space a more gentle sort of kind um experience and, and approach it's the sort of thing that yeah and and you know as they're coming up they don't feel like right away they're they're having to interact with somebody right away they can kind of creep up on it and i see a lot of people come up halfway and they go back down and they leave which you know of course you never want to see but at the same time it's like i'm glad for that opportunity for them to you know look and and not feel like you know they have to do whatever and and, um yeah like all those sorts of things i do spend a lot of time thinking about you know the the counters are very low there's that everything's very bright because it's pretty dark there's no windows in the space other than mm-hmm. the one at the front. So all that sort of stuff. Yeah, we spent a lot of time thinking about planning those things out. Yeah. So, so Nick, the, there's, there's lots of things there that you're saying are great about the shop and you love it. Is there anything you would like want to change? Anything that you've kind of thought, I wish I could do this or I'd like to take it in this direction? Um, not really. Be, only because, you know, the space dictates a certain mm-hmm. uh, layout and such. And I think I'm really, really proud of the way that we... Um, built out the space. I don't know that there's a lot that we would change. Actually, I do know there's one thing. There, I realized that I'd made one measurement error, and so there's a little bit too much room behind the counter where the brew bar is, about like, like 15, 20 centimeters or so, which would have been nice to have that on the customer side. Um, and that's unfortunate. But other than that, we're pretty proud of the way everything turned out. Yeah, I, I think we're being... Uh... So far, we've been really nice to you. You've had a bit of an easy ride, but I'm gonna I'm gonna unleash Steve on you on on Brewers Cup in about twenty seconds. But I, I wanted to run <laughs> something quickly past you, uh, which is 
uh, how do how do I order milk drinks at your bar? Because I've seen you, you tweet this uh, or about this recently. Um, are all milk drinks created equally at, at your coffee bar, or do you have lattes, cappuccinos, flat whites, or how do you approach that one? Oh, we have we have lattes and cappuccino, and we have a cortado on the menu, which is like a a warm, not hot, uh, five ounce double shot, you know, milk drink. We have a mocha up there, iced coffee, and then a pour-over thing on the menu, and, and a filter coffee as well. And that's it. I mean, we, we want to simplify it by, um, for instance, there's a default size. If someone says, I want a cup of coffee, they don't get a question about, like, well, what size do you want? What kind of yeah. do you want? Like, blah, blah, blah. They just get one. So we want to simplify it in that way. But I, I'm not a big fan of the, the milk. I mean, a coffee or milk and coffee. I just think it's a little bit too precious, and, and it's trying to it's trying to be it's trying to be novel at at the expense of um, being kind and friendly. I think I don't know. Yeah, I think that, that's just the, the, at our shop we we do that, but we don't do that. Um, so all of our milk drinks are the same size. Okay, so if you order a cappuccino or a latte or a flat white. They're all the same size, okay? But we come from the position that we said, okay, we're going to pull our espressos this way and we're going to always steam milk this way and there will always be this one way. Uh, and that's just the way we chose to do it. So they're going to pick one recipe and go with that and that will be our, like our, our, our kind of signature style of milk drink, okay? So like this. Um, and then, but what happens is that people come in and say, can I get a cappuccino, latte and a flat white? And the bit that I don't want to do is to say, well, actually, what we do is we have a cup for this and we just do that. And I give everybody a lecture when they come in about what we do. So what ends up happening, and I'm not saying this is the, what's right, it's, it's the biggest, it's the most confusing thing about my shop that I hate, is that people will order three different drinks, get the same drinks, they will like them all and they will all leave, <laughs> but they'll keep coming back and ordering three different drinks. And I right. don't want to ever... And it's eventually, after about six months, I go, these are all the same, aren't they? It's like, yeah, look, we just have one size because we think that's a really good balance for the style of espresso and roasting that we use. And we're not saying that you're wrong, but that's just the one way that we've decided to do it, the same way we have one way to do espresso. And it's cool. You can call it what you like. You paid for it. That makes sense? <laughs> it's very confusing, <laughs> that's though. That's funny. I, yeah. Well, uh, I think that the way that we communicate these things, the way that we communicate in coffee is i mean it takes up so much of the the conversation right it's just how are we communicating these things back and forth to and from our customers our guests and to the you know to the general public and everyone has their own way and it's it's fine and there's definitely room for a lot of diversity so yeah yeah well like how how do you deal with it if somebody comes okay because this is the thing that i always got where somebody would come in and say can i get a cappuccino and say okay and we we used to do like a three different sizes at the old shop and uh, we would make a cappuccino and then someone would go that's not a cappuccino and I would always be like well what is a cappuccino though there's, there's like I, I, that was that's, it's the most frustrating conversation to have with people sometimes a really good conversation to have with people but when it's a queue 12 people deep it's a real kind of like oh okay what is a cappuccino and uh, yeah I don't know if that's I think uh, if we could go back to the year's dip I would wish somebody would just put definitions in place so we could all Stick to those, you know what I mean? Well, but if we could all read each other's minds, it'd be so great, or maybe not so great. I mean, this is San Francisco, and in 2014, 2015, people tend to be more informed and in the loop on these things than otherwise. But, um, we, I mean, we get our fair share of people for whom 
there's clearly some kind of miscommunication. But, you know, I think people, I think we know how to deal with situations where there's a misunderstanding and you talk it out and you try to get, you know, those things figured out. That's um, true. Yeah. It's the best way to do it. Um, so, Brewers Cup. Um, yes. You are very proud of Brewers Cup uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a huge success. Are you still uh, con- like involved in the rulemaking and, and the kind of uh, the strategy for that? Uh, no. And I want, I almost said, thankfully, no, I wouldn't say thankfully, but it was important for me, um, just watching some of the other people over the years involved in some of the other things in, uh, out there to be able to put it together and essentially let it go. Um, I did make a request informally to some of the powers that be, which is if you want to change a rule, it's yours to change. However, do me a favor, just Ask me why the rule exists the way that it does so that you can make an informed decision. And this came a lot from watching the WBC rules evolve over the years, and I'd had a lot to do with those as well. And just realizing that, you know, people were making – they were tinkering and messing with stuff that they had no understanding of. And as you both know and a lot of people who are listening know, I mean, that's almost defines so much of what happens in coffee, right? It's just everyone thinks that everything was invented yesterday. Um, I remember in 2005, somebody writing on a discussion board, you know, the, the establishment, the old school sort of traditionalists like Nick Cho and Peter Giuliano. I mean, back in 05, that was such an absurd thing to say. We'd just shown <laughs> up like the day before, but this guy had shown up five minutes ago. And so we were like the establishment. And so, um, so no, so no, I don't have a lot. I don't have a lot to do with it anymore. Um, Kyung Hee Shin, who's uh, known as Bean Wife out there in, in, in all the internet. Um, she works with us and she's pretty involved still. Um, but not me. Thankfully. Um, Steve, I want you to jump in here. I'm too scared to jump in here. I want to see what happens. Okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to go stir some. Steve has a problem with Brewers Cup because it's turned into a, uh, into a, into a gay show <laughs> okay, competition. Okay, so let, let, let's have some context, yeah. context to it. I've started this. I'm sitting here stirring Thanks. the big pot. There we go. Well, see, part of my problem is, Nick, is like, I, I'm still a little bit of a fanboy. So, like, kind of dissing anything Nick Cho does, he's still a little bit painful for me. It's still a little bit kind of weird. But I have no respect for you, Nick. Most of, most of the time when this sort of thing happens, people think they are dissing me, but you're actually not. So go okay. ahead. Okay. So I actually like the Brewers' I pro- Cup. I probably agree with you. I, I entered the Brewers' Cup last year, and for some reason I didn't win. I don't know why. But, like, <laughs> there was something went wrong somewhere. But I, He's the king of Chemex. I am the king of Chemex. I, I have a crown. I actually walked around London Coffee Festival last year with, with my crown on, uh, dissing everybody. Um, oh, dear. Yeah, yeah. No, it was, it was amazing. I looked really good. Um, but I have a problem with the coffees that kind of seem to win time after time. And I kind of feel a lot of that comes down to the actual score sheet that Brewer's Cup is done on. Because it's essentially a cupping sheet. So cupping sheet, geishas tend to come out very highly because they have properties that we think are need rewarding on a score sheet. Um, and I kind of wonder whether the cupping score sheet was the best way to go with the Brewers' Cup and what the thinking was when you put that together. Um, I'm with you 100%. It wasn't supposed to be a geisha slash Kenya slash Jerkachev 
sort of competition. Um, again, I don't want to go on too long about this, but in a nutshell, okay, first of all, um, there are things about the Brewers' Cup design that have been a little bit ruined by other people. I will, and, and I don't need to name names because it's actually not any specific person's fault. Everyone's trying to work very hard and do a good job. Um, I think this year I've decided I'm going to be a lot more open and honest about my feelings about these things and the recent competitions and stuff. And I think we'll talk more about that, some of that stuff later as well. I hadn't noticed. I hadn't noticed at all. Yeah. Well, the, but I mean, the thing is that, as we know, you know, it's such a small community. And so sometimes when you criticize things, people take it very personally. And, and you know, talking about g- gender bias in barista competitions, there are all these judges who felt like they were being personally attacked, which has it, like is completely absurd idea. But I understand, you know, I understand that people are sensitive. So when it comes to Brewers Cup, the original design was that this was a competition that not only would... Um, first and foremost, would inspire people to brew coffee better because at the time, you know, 2008, 2009, um, people, you know, were starting to do a lot of pour overs and such. Um, this is, you know, right after the, the uh, Clover sold to Starbucks, and so everyone was looking for some kind of brew-by-the-cup solution, and pour overs was the most accessible. And the um, Uber was just invented. Right. And so people... Um, we're doing a lot of manual coffee brewing, but number one, it didn't taste particularly good. Not as good as, as I thought that it could taste, or a lot of people thought that it could taste. And second of all, um, they were taking way too long to do it. And so, you know, I, I was just reflecting on this and realized, wait a second, you know, the barista competitions have been such a, a vehicle and, a, and, a, and an engine of um, development and change. And, you know, not all for the better. Some, you know, I would say it's, it's, uh, there's negative uh, changes, but I would say that there are definitely things that are fairly arbitrary that um, things have developed into. That said, could we do the same thing with manual brewed, brewed coffee? And then there are all these things that were so exciting about it, for instance. You know, this is something that wouldn't necessarily need, you know, months and months of preparation and practice. This is something that it's about brewing it well. And if you brewed it well by accident or you brewed it well, on, you know, through years of practice – Bring it well, and having it taste good is the, the key element. Um, but to your point, but what if it just becomes a coffee competition, like the barista competition very often is criticized for? said, well, that, comes, that, that can be uh, addressed in a couple different ways. One was the, the, the compulsory round, the idea that what if everyone was provided the same coffee and you had some practice time and it was about producing the best beverage that you could out of that same coffee. Is that a demonstration of a relevant skill and of expertise as a coffee professional or not? And decided the answer was yes. I, and I so came first in was, the UK, won on that one. I came first. You did. I won the, I won the compulsory round because I'm awesome. Again, yeah, he, is, he is the Chemex king. I don't know if I mentioned <laughs> that earlier. And so, um, so that was hopefully you know, going to address that somewhat. The other point of the compulsory round was that, and I think this is still true today, to some degree, people are still um, talking about coffee more than they're doing good coffee, if that makes any sense. I you know, the idea, like, what's what's a greater value, the quality of the coffee or being able to talk about coffee? Yeah. And so 
you know, the compulsory round being something that you had to get through to get to finals, the lesson was, or the, the message was, if you can't brew well, then shut up and go back to practicing. You know, once you're brewing well, now you get to talk about the coffee, you know, and only then do you really sort of deserve to. There's, a, you know, so yeah, the problem, and again, to be honest with you, you, you and everybody, in the first couple of years was in that system, we had finalists who were so boring and didn't necessarily weren't necessarily good at giving a presentation, which while it's not as important, I think as the cup itself, as it pertains to having a competition that happens in public and such, it it was definitely something that was not, uh, not a success. And so the idea of having, and especially the idea on top of that, that people at the national and world level would be coming so far and preparing these coffees and practicing and never get to give their presentation even once if they didn't make it past compulsories resulted in the change where the round one is actually compulsory and a uh, open service, not just a compulsory. Um, but to, the, to your other point, Stephen, about it being a cupping form and therefore favoring, uh, favoring certain coffees and such that score highly on a cupping sheet – that's an unfortunate, and I will say that to, to a great degree, that's a leadership issue, and that has a lot to do with um, the training of the judges, uh-huh. that that's a fundamental value that is really important in the judging that I would say has gotten lost. Do you, th- do you think it might have been, like, because I know in the, the first couple of years you had to be a Q graded to be a judge. Do you think that might have been one of the, the kind of, like because there isn't really training as such to be uh, a, a Brewers Cup certainly at national level there isn't the same focus on training as there is and we just use I know in the UK we're using UKBC judges um, and hoping that they'll do a good job uh, do you think because because there wasn't a training in place at the start and we were relying on the Q grader that that was an issue well I, the Q the idea of the Q grader requirement for the first few years. That was really about the idea that we have coffee professionals out there. We have people with years of experience. Why are we having these standards that no one's prepared to, um, no one's prepared for, you know, the way the WBC stuff is? And again, we'll get to that later. Um, we'll get more to that later. But, you know, is, is there a way to tap into the community of coffee professionals in a way where people have already somewhat uh, prepared themselves unknowingly to be good judges. And so, you know, having the form be that cupping form and having the Q grader uh, license be a requirement was a way to help pre-qualify people a little bit. But um, in the grand scheme of things, again, in the op- uh, from my perspective, that requirement was inconvenient to a certain business model for the way that things are set up, as well as um, there is this thing, and we'll talk more about it, that, that actually I think my wife Trish has called, uh, first named, the WBC head judge industrial complex. Yes, I read that one the other day. That made me think a lot. You know, there's this, there's this sort of machine out there. And again, it's made up of individuals, but it actually has nothing to do with those people and specifically that have generated this sort of culture when it comes to judging that we are the authorities on you know high scores or low scores and therefore um 
it the idea that there are these objective standards sort of got lost, I think, and instead has been replaced by, you know, we're the head judges, we are the arbiter arbiters of quality and of high scores, and that sort of philosophy, which comes from the WBC, is exactly what I was trying to counteract with the Brewers Cup format. But now it's kind of gotten sucked into that vortex, and I don't know if it's ever going to find its way back out. If you could go back when you were setting up those those, is there anything that you like really would have changed at those foundation stages? I know you're saying like, you know, tinkering is bad, but is there anything that you would have done like completely different with it? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I think that maybe a little bit more attention spent on the back end systems as regards to judging and such. But I don't know that there, I mean, and I don't mean to sound defeatist, but at this point with the way the economics of everything are going, I don't know that there's anything stopping the head judge industrial complex. You know, they're going to creep in and basically like assimilate everything into that system one way or the other. And until the powers that be have the courage, and I'm going to say this straight out, the courage to, break you know that economic structure and rebuild it in a way that's more sustainable ultimately and that's more democratic and open there's really no stopping that and so i don't think that there's anything that could have been done in advance in the design that would have really done anything different so uh, just to make sure that i fully understand that what you're saying essentially is that there's a there's a system in place where there's a a large amount of power uh, in the resting in the hands of uh, a few that are uh, that are dictating the course of competitions uh, to the point where um, the, you're losing opinion and subjectivity in there because uh, these few people are deciding what the outcome will be. It's not that there's few people deciding. It's kind of it's this weird sort of hive mind, um, this groupthink kind of problem. So, for instance, okay, like who decides? what high scores are like who decides what is a high scoring uh yeah. on anything and it's like well there's certain things that that are relatively objective as pertains to you know is a tamp pretty level or whatever like there's a certain scale that you might need to calibrate on but level is level and even is even and uneven is uneven etc but when it comes to things related to taste then like well what are the standards that you're being judged against and there are, I believe there are ways of breaking those things out. And the, I think the cupping form does a fairly good job in that regard of values like aftertaste and, and acidity. On, on some of the score sheets, you see sweetness, um, body, you know, things like that. When you break it down, you're able to focus on each one. Um, but then when you look at the barista competitions, you realize, wait a second, you know, there isn't like this guru that lives on a mountain that is the one that knows all the scores and is the perfect judge. It's more of this sort of hive mind collaborative kind of environment where, you know, it's about calibrating and getting on the same page. In that regard, like it is a lo- little bit like cupping. Um, there is that sort of idea. The problem is that when it becomes fundamentally about calibration, when your standards don't have strong f- rooting in um, real values of gustatory and taste evaluation, again, like acidity and sweetness and stuff like that, then it becomes like, well, what makes, to, what makes for a good judge? Well, you're a good judge if you agree with us. If you are in alignment with us, then you are a good judge. If you are not, then I'm sorry, but, you know, good try, but you're, you're not there. 
And and where did the people who um, are the quote unquote head judges now? Where did they derive their authority from? Well, they were around at the right place at the right time to get you know benighted in that sort of like English sense. You know, back in oh five oh six or you know whenever they did. There's nobody who's involved today who was involved at the very beginning of the WBC. Um, instead, so the analogy that I've been using a lot is that interestingly enough, I don't say that the I don't consider the WBC head judges to be like this council of you know of sinister whatever people. They're people who are working very hard trying to do a good job with the thing that they've been given. So the analogy that I've been using is it's like having a ship where there's all these lieutenants running around who are, you know, uh, making sure that everything's going well. But then when you go to the captain's room and you look at whose hand is on the wheel, there's nobody there. There's nobody there. Instead, they've just been doing the best that they can with what they've been given. There's no direction. There's no vision. There's no, like, uh, there isn't that sort of CEO capacity. Instead, it's this more community, hive-minded kind of system and I think that it's broken. I think it's well, fundamentally yeah, broken. Yeah, one of the things that one of the things that that, that that struck me, I was talking to somebody recently about competition, and I said over the four years that I the four years I competed, which was over five years because it was a year out in the middle, I saw a, a decrease, a, a sharp decrease over those five years, in variation in judges' scores, and uh, someone said, "Oh, isn't that a great thing?" Because I'm not sure it is. I'm not sure that the judges that I had the first year were were worse tasters of coffee than I, they were the last year. But the the by the time it got to Melbourne, every score sheet was the same. You know, they were so right. They said the same things. They taught the same things. And I'm like, but that doesn't reflect the environment that I work in. Like myself and Steve, will we are business partners. We have the same uh, ethos when it comes to uh, to roasting and to brewing. And we will fight like cats and dogs over a single cup of coffee quite regularly. The same thing happens in my shop. If I tell a customer that this is the best coffee that they're ever likely to try and they don't like it, I don't say, okay, you're wrong, taste it again. You know, it it doesn't reflect the environment that we work in. But the thing is, is I've done a lot of Cup of Excellence juries. Well, I say I've done a lot, I've done six, seven Cup of Excellence juries. And when I've been on them... That's a lot. Okay, good. Uh, Then I've quantified it. Um... But you, what you find is that there are a bunch of judges that score between 82 and 87 just so they can right. be calibrated with each other. And the ones that go out and chuck 94s out and then they'll chuck 76s out, they're the judges you want because they show real differences and they have real preferences. Um, but again, the pressure is on you as a Cup of Excellence judge to calibrate with everybody, to be in tune with everybody. Because if you go outside of those boundaries, you're, you stand out. You know, you're, oh, why is he doing that? Um, and I think that's a lot the same that's happened with the WBC um, and the, not just the WBC, all the coffee competitions where everybody is so desperate to calibrate and so scared of being called out as not being a, a good taste or a good judge that, you know, we just end up with this very in-line scoring. Um, and where a lot of it goes right. on personality of the people that, you know, we, we sit there and we go, oh, who's going to make semi-finals this year and you pick out six of them without tasting their coffee and without watching their performances and you're normally right yeah i think that the slowly over time what's happening is that the goal has become for the judges at least the goal has slowly become score the same rather than let's let's uh, evaluate the coffee does that make sense 
or have individuality or an opinion on it. I, I don't mind. Like there was, I, I, in one of my finals I, in the earlier years, I had a five and a half and a two for the same signature drink that was that tasted the same. They're just portioned out, and I was like, "That's that's fine. That's the game." Right. And I think that when it comes to all things coffee, there's going to be a balance, right, between subjectivity and objective quality. You know, there is such a thing as objective quality as it pertains to taste. It's not purely subjective. Just like, you know, beauty in, you know, people's faces. We know, we've all heard that symmetry is a certain value, you know, that people attribute to to great beauty. Um, It doesn't mean that symmetry is the only thing. But we put those two things together and, we, you know, in, in the mystery that is, you know, human discernment, we, we come to a certain judgment. That's natural and that's a certain degree of fair. And being able to design a competition that is able to reconcile that and find that good balance and try to uh, manage that as best as possible, that's the ultimate challenge. What we have right now is, to, to both of your points, is... Uh, sort of almost this denial of the subjectivity and this idea that we have the objective. We are the, you know, we know what's objectively good because we're the ones who decide. We are the deciders, and so it creates this environment where people really think that they are, you know, possess this idea in their heads. Meanwhile, you know, you taste the coffees, and this, you know, I think, uh, Stephen, you've emceed and you've, you've tasted, you know drinks at competitions a bunch of you know times over the years sure. they're very often to where coming from it outside of the judging pool and approaching it completely you know for the first time and you taste one of those finals espressos and it just hits you right away this made finals like this is what they're looking for huh like there, there's there's something that they're looking for that that i don't quite understand i mean that is everyone's experience when you have that kind of um encounter and it's really again because this when the fundamental value of being a breeze competition judge is first and foremost you must agree with what we have decided is good if that's the criteria then you're in big trouble and do you think that okay are you envisaging in a perfect world not a perfect world let's say if you in a reformed wbc that you would be happy with you are you, would you envisage a situation where somebody, where a judge would taste a coffee that, let's say, okay, let's use an obvious example, where somebody that their preference is with naturals could get presented a natural, taste it on the basis of what the barista uh, has presented it. Like they've, they, they describe it in a certain way. They say it'll, it will, you know, taste like this. This is where, you know, they've described it enough. And they, in their own mind, can kind of go, I don't like naturals. I get where they're going. They get a high score. I think that ultimately the barista competition should be rewarding demonstrated skill and expertise by the barista. That's pretty much the core value, you know, in presentation, in crafting of the beverages, in in all that they do, they're demonstrating skill. So that idea of they just brought a geisha to the table, you know, should get balanced out by that idea. You know, if someone, you know, shows up with, you know, more expensive equipment or whatever, and it's clearly more impressive in that way, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that it needs to score higher because they didn't really do anything to enhance that. All they did was just have somebody spend more money, and that's not what the competition's about. Um, yeah. You know, I, I don't want to get into it too much, but, you know, I, I think both of you know I, I had worked on, 
um, a new format for the competition. And to make a long story short, the head judge industrial complex pushed back really, really hard. And it was deemed at the end of the day, it's just basically been cast aside saying, well, that that was a funny idea. And now now let's do something where we're still in charge, where uh, fundamentally it's uh, uh, still about going to maintain our power base. Because, again, let's call let's call people out. You know, there are people who have made a career now out of being a barista competition judge or head judge. And if those are the people who are in charge, they're going to maintain a system that is going to keep them in employed and if if they're allowed to do that then the powers that be have allowed that to happen then it's their fault yeah like you, you spoke earlier about the, the brewers cup and when steve mentioned um the q graders and one, one of the things when i found out that you needed to be a q grader to get to get in uh, to be a judge uh, what made what struck me about that was that how, how much is it to do the q graders course is it like two thousand euro or something um, it depends. It's, it's, yeah, so it's it's around. Okay, so it's an expensive thing. Two thousand euros. Yeah, it's about that. I think here, as far yeah, as I'm, like, I'm, 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 at least a thousand. Twelve hundred, thirteen hundred dollars here. Yeah. Yeah, that's about eight thousand euro. Um, the, <laughs> the, um, the okay. But so what happened is that you end up in a situation, kind of by accident, where uh, you need to pay to be uh, a judge. Now, this has always been the thing that struck me about WBC judges is that. Um, they're, they're there on their own time they have to pay their expenses and stuff you do the courses and then like I think it would be far more valuable um, for the WBC to charge people say this is the course it costs 3,000 euros okay you do the course you can fail there's a high failure rate if you pass you then you are accredited and that means that you can put the badge on your business cards on your website You'll get listed on the official list of WBC accredited judges, and then you can, you you don't have to feel guilty uh, or tiptoe in the idea of you making a career off this because you've paid your dues, you've passed the course, and then you have to pass it again next year. And then what that does is that when you've paid for the course and you've you've earned that place, it brings with it both obligations and responsibilities. And those obligations and responsibilities involve you training for the competition because when I'm uh, locked in a training room uh, for, you know, five weeks before the competition, you know, late at night and you're not seeing your friends and all this kind of stuff, I don't think there's judges in the world that are locked themselves in a room somewhere and that they're training and that they're nervous about their big thing and they're doing everything in their power to, to get ready for the competition. Do you know what I mean? And there's that imbalance there. But the, I think that, to some degree, that's what they've been trying to do for the past few years. Um, it's designed just that kind of system. The problem is there's still a group that has to administrate that system. And that's where the problem lies, as far as I'm concerned. So just just to go back, Nick, you're saying about the uh, that, you know, there's a certain... And I don't want to kind of dwell too much on it, because I know we've got other stuff to talk about. But you talk about that the judges are looking for a specific thing because that's what they're trying to do. But you've sat there and you've had been lucky enough to taste drinks from, you know, finals. And I know Colin uh, uh, last year uh, in Rimini came and tasted the finals drinks as well. And every single one of them was completely different. So if there is that yeah. magic thing they're looking for, what is it? What is that magic thing? Oh, you, have, you don't ask me. Ask the judges. <laughs> they're the ones who decide everything, right? I mean. But what do you think that magic thing is? What do you think it is? I think that it's I, I think that rather than being a specific thing, the way that I would answer that question is it is 
whatever the head judges and powers that be have decided are the values. Those are the things they're going to focus on. That's it. It's pretty much that's it. And whoever delivers that in a way that makes them happy is going to score higher. Um, on the most part, you know, I've been seeing it for years that the, the number one, how do you win barista competitions? Compete a lot. Number one, because of course you get a lot of practice, but maybe more importantly, people get to see you a lot and they get to know you. And if you're doing, you know, as you creep up into ranks, then there's this sort of, pres- there's this, uh, self-fulfilling prophecy there's a confirmation bias you know like if if this is colin Harmon, he's uh you know however many time national champion obviously he's going to give us something good can't wait to try it you know that kind of confirmation bias you know it it serves the people that it serves well and there have absolutely been outliers who've crept in outside of that kind of idea but that's you know, the number one way you win breast competition. One of the reasons this exists, Tampa Tantrum exists, was that me and Colin came up with the idea in 2009 that your face needed to be out there, Colin, wasn't it? It was a, a brand-building thing for both of us, but it was it, very it much to be very, one of those people. Yeah, it, sounds, it sounds very uh, kind of cynical in a sense, but we were very conscious that... I remember the way I described it to, to Steve was that if, if I could turn on a, a random uh, Premier League football match... And I can watch it. Even if my team aren't playing, I can watch it because I know the guys that are playing. Or if there's a World Cup on and I know there's a few of the players that I know that are playing for Spain or playing for Brazil, I'll watch that game even though Ireland aren't playing. But as soon as a game comes on where it's, let's say, um, Korea against New Zealand, I have no interest because I don't know any of the players. I'm not familiar with them. And I, I lose interest. And the idea behind, well, one of the ideas behind Tamper Tantrum is it wasn't as, as uh, Machiavellian as all that, but one of the ideas was that if we're going to go for competition again, we need to be familiar. And you need to, people go, oh, I, I know that guy. And if even it's only that they see it once or they hear about it, it's, it's that kind of, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I can admit at this stage, after four years competing, there, there were times when I did, uh, like I'd say maybe three, four occasions when I got through certain rounds and I, did, uh, I didn't deserve to get through at all, and that I got through on reputation. Right. It's true. And, and I think this is, you know, we can talk about this forever, but just to kind of segue into the gender issue, this is actually, to me, the gender issue as it pertains to British competitions is actually a subset of this conversation. It's really a, a function of the way that the competitions are set up and the way that they're judged and who wins and what that, you know, does, uh, what, what happens after that, because the way that, you know, when you don't have a system that is rooted in, and people can disagree with me on this, but I believe that they're not, as it pertains to the major scores, too many of them are not rooted in really anything other than this is what we score high. This is what we like, you know, who's we, you know, us judges, this is what we've been scoring high. So therefore that's what we will continue to score high. Um, There's that. And as well as this idea that when somebody wins a competition, they set, not only set a new bar, but they also sort of dictate what the new trends are in flavor and such. It's its own sort of version of confirmation bias, you know, so, you know, Matt Perger, you know, I, I, Pete Licata obviously won in Melbourne, 
But, you know, he won on scores and he deserved to win. That said, like, he didn't do a lot that was a big conversation piece, right? Pizza friend, I think it's okay to say that. You know, everyone was focused on Matt Perger, EK43. Like, that thing, you know, took off. And now you look, and how many EK43s do you see in competitions now? Well, the, why? Why are there so many EK43s in competition? Well, because it appeared to be successful. And it must, if it was successful, then it must be what they're looking for. And therefore, you know, I need to figure out how to use this EK-43 to my advantage. You know, that kind of thinking. That happens every year. There's something, there one or two or three things that somebody did that catches people's eye. And then it shows up in a large number of presentations the following year. When you have a system that that kind of thing happens a lot in, then what happens is that if it's mostly men who are win- winning competitions, then the things that they're doing end up being part of that value structure, whether you know it or not. And then lo and behold, you, have, you find yourself in a situation where we've had zero WBC champions who are women in the history of the competition. You know? And we used to have more women in the finals rounds back, like I think, to like 2008 and before, but subsequently, it's been very, very few women. It's like Miki Suzuki. Who else is a woman who's made it into finals at WBC in the past few years? I can't even think other than Miki Suzuki. That's been kind of it, hasn't it, since 2009? Hard to think. Uh, 2009, there was no women. 2010, there was uh, no women. 2011, no women. 2012. No, 11, 11, 11 was oh, Miki Suzuki yeah. in, in the finals. And, tw- and 11 and 12. Yeah, 11 and 12, that's it. Yeah. Uh, and then yeah. none, in, none in 13, none in 14. And, and whereas, you know, a lot of our f- friends and people who judge us now are f- prior finalists in WBCs in like 08, 07, and before that. Well, like, well, how does that kind of thing happen? Well, that's what I mean is, is that it tends to get focused. And it, in that way, you know, as you were saying, Colin, as things get more and more the same, that's where the gender sort of thing kicks in. I definitely think that there was, you know, there has been, and I've heard anecdotally, um, straight up sexist remarks made years ago uh, it, from judges and sometimes, you know, from judges to competitors that seemed oblivious that they were making sexist remarks. Um, you know, that has pretty much disappeared from the competition culture as i've seen it at least in the u.s and at the world level so are we talking about like overt sexism and you know that kind of discrimination no but we are talking about an institutional sort of system that is stacked against women if for no other reason then women haven't been winning so that's not the kind of thing people quote unquote are looking for as it pertains to values, as it pertains to the way the presentations are given, as it pertains to values of flavor, you know, is there a difference in terms of the way that women approach these things as men? Well, that's another whole conversation. I believe the answer is yes in certain ways that are meaningful. But again, it's a complicated and complex uh, topic. But suffice it to say, you know, I got an email from somebody who said, oh, in my country, it's only women who keep winning. It's like, well, that's its own bias, too. You know, it, 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 the issue is that the way the system is set up, it can, it can create these kind of problems. Uh, so the, the foundations are the issue, not necessarily the way that they manifest themselves. Do you think there's, do, do you think there's an aspect of contributory, contributory negligence within this that, like, 
in a lot of a lot of European countries, uh, for instance, I'm not sure what it's like in the States, but if there are 50 entrants, the likelihood is that there are 45 men. I think it. I think it makes. Yeah, I think those things contribute for sure. Definitely, you know, and I've heard the opposite again. In some other countries, they're mostly women. Russia you know? has a has a huge history of, of women champions. Yeah. So I I don't know enough about those situations, those contexts to be able to speak intelligently on it. But um, those things happen, and and yeah, in each one of those situations, it's its own issue. So so what 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 can what is the magic wand? What is the bullet to fix it? How how do you start to address this you know, this this problem? What do we do? I I mean I I tried. <laughs> I tried my own way, and it was really an inside-out overhauling of the whole system that created a, a situation where, you know, people could learn standards. You know, these things would be based on standards that the industry would teach and everyone would learn. It would be the lingua franca of how people look at espresso and how people talk about these flavor things. And then that way, um, through years of training and practice, just as a coffee professional yourself, it would be effectively preparing you to be a good judge and the people who are best at evaluating these things would you know be able to judge fairly easily without having to learn a complicated system that they've never seen before um and that so in that way like you were saying before Colin like the judges would be they would have to do prove themselves as being a good judge and ability to calibrate and such would be one of those things um that to me was at the core of the solution. There's a way to measure how well people are doing in that regard without having to be the one who is the decider of scores. But, but to throw you know. to throw something else into it, we're saying that you know there's this amalgamation of just chasing this one thing. Do we do the complete opposite and make people be able to be much more uh, kind of have personal preferences to have those kind of because we're saying that there's a, a you know we're all bunching together in one place. Uh, because that's the thing that we chase, you know, that is seen as the thing to be chasing. Maybe we just make it where there's actually the judge has even more uh, personal opinion going into it, and actually being able to express themselves instead of putting them in the little box. Well, I think that's naturally a certain kind of da- there's a certain danger that's and, and threat that's mixed into that. But you know, for, in that regard, it's kind of like saying like, well, we're going to have a Kenya, you know, Kenya cupping sort of competition and we're also going to have one of wet hold sumatras you know you you and i or somebody might say but i don't like wet hold sumatras and the answer back would be it doesn't matter whether you like it or not can you judge a good one and can you score it accurately and and be able to discern it that way that's what we're trying to do here not say well i don't like this so i'm just going to give it a zero mm-hmm. or a low score you know this is part of being a professional Right. Yeah, but it kind of comes. It, but it kind of comes back to what, when we started talking about competition with the Brewers Cup, as in we've ended up falling into a, a, a trap of rewarding certain coffees because of the, the of following those processes of we're going to use this scoring system that's a cupping sheet that we reward those things very highly, so people come with those coffees and have less uh, ability to. You know, so actually, I really like this natural, and this is great, and I think this is really well, a really well brewed natural. I'm going to score it this. 
But that's reflective of what right. we see every day in our job. Like one of the, uh, oh, he's going to kill me for saying this. Oh, I'm gonna, this is, this is going to feel nice. Tim Williams came to my shop once and I served him a past crop uh, naturally processed El Salvador coffee. Um, it, it Why? Was the same, it, it was the same one that uh, Alejandro Mendez uh, used to win the world championships. And it was delicious. Well, it was, I would say it was past crop. It was like, uh, it was probably 30, like 12, like 13, 14 months. It was still delicious. It was definitely different to what it used to be. It was still extremely noteworthy. It was nice. He drank it, said, that was excellent. What is it? I said, it's a past crop natural coffee. And, but the, the, the thing is that he'd come to the shop, but welcomed him, we sat down, how was your flight? And it was all that kind of like sit down and, you know, how are you? And it's the moment. It's all the, 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 the jiggly stuff, I'm going to call it. Like that's, that, all that is, that's, that's, your, that's your job. That's what you do, you know? And he comes into a world where if I had sent him that coffee and said, can you, can you cup that and give me your feedback? He would rip me to shreds probably. But it's like, this is, that's your job is that you, you present something. Like Steve joked this morning, we went to, the, to 3FE and he, he joked that, oh, you've got a Colossi on your menu. I've got to tweet that and people will rip you apart. And it's like, that's what we're working <laughs> towards is that if anyone found out that we had a Colossi on the board of 3FE today, which we're very proud to do, that you get shreds torn out of you. And I actually bought it as well. So I bought the Colossi that we had on our board and I happily sell it because it is really good as well. But um, yeah, you know, there is those biases of, you know, what people will think. And if that, that 13 month old natural was amazing, it was still cupping amazing. It was tasting delicious. So, you know, with, with the good service, with the good mood, with all those things, it made it into a great experience. This is where, I mean, ultimately it's this idea that, like, we're supposed to be professionals. There's What does professionalism mean in terms of our coffee discernment? It doesn't mean we're really good at pointing out problems. You know, anyone can do that. You know, someone can look at the supermodel Cindy Crawford and go, oh, my God, she's got a mole on her face. <laughs> Horrible. Like, moles on, their mole has no place on a woman's face, you know, and decide that someone it, – it's absurd what people get caught up in. What are we trying to do here? We're trying to be professionals. And so being able to understand and approach coffees in a professional way, be able to evaluate them according to the standards that they – the context and standards that they should be um, looked at – you know, there's a room for personal preference. Don't buy that coffee if you don't like it. But, you know, trying to, in the process, needing to dismiss something as being ridiculous or, or disgusting or whatever because you don't like it and not giving yourself the opportunity to learn, well, but there are certain, you know, values here. You know, what is good about this? And is there a market for this coffee? And what is that market kind of thing? Those are all things that professionals do, but very often we get, we're pretty stuck. One final thing that I want to ask you on the, on the gender issue in competitions. Um, there has been suggestions in different quarters about having a, a, what they call a positive discrimination or perhaps even a, a women's competition. So I, I don't know if you watch very much rugby, Nick, but in rugby, uh, there was a rule um, put in place recently with the Springboks, the South African rugby team, where a certain qu- a number of players have to be black. Uh-huh. Or, um, and I mean, it, here we talk about affirmative action in the states in that regard. Yes, yeah. you know, in the interest of of a certain type of diversity, creating systems that encourage uh, more participation from underrepresented groups. Like personally, I think that's I think it's a sh- I think it's an excellent short term idea, a bad long term idea in the sense that 
if we take that South African example, that what will happen is that um, the black kids in South Africa will see, okay, there's there's uh, black men playing for the national team. That's something I can aspire to. Those guys are like me. They come from where I come from. I can do this. And it's they're role models. Uh, in the long term, it becomes... Um, it it becomes an unfair leg up to somebody. They should be there on uh, they should be there on merit. Once that they've been given a scenario in the first place, where they were inspired as much as the white kid that lives down the road. So within barista competitions, like I I think it would be a great idea at national level at least to allow one male entry per female entry. I think it gets difficult if you allow finals to be you know it has to be three women in a final and three men. But at least the entry to say, okay, well, we can have up to 40 entries, but we need to have 20 men and 20 women. And do that on a short-term basis. Create a structure wherein we have an opportunity to put women forward within competition as positive role models. Uh, The ability is there and the skill set is there. It's undoubted. But I think that in the short term would be a very good measure, if only for two or three years. I I think that um, if there was a situation where there was true underrepresentation uh, in a way that, that needed that kind of fix, like something that, uh, you know, in a certain national sort of level that might be something that people would look at. Most of the time when those, you know, ideas come up in society, it's because the, the economic sort of like uh, the thing that you're, you're talking about, be it academics or business or whatever, you know, that, that there are, there aren't necessarily rules that can be changed that may, would fix the situation on their own. Rather, you have to sort of change it on the input side um, uh, in order to make it better. That's not true of operating competitions. It is addressable at the judge level. It's just that w- the longer that the judges are, uh, uh, are committed to feeling secure and you know, reestablishing and affirming their role and their authority if that as long as that is a high priority you know there won't be change you know once people are able to look at it so you know i've keep hearing over and over again that you know my tweets or other other conversations about gender bias at barista competitions has inspired a lot of conversations among judges especially like this year at the u.s barista championship unfortunately apparently all those conversations were are you biased? No. Are you sexist? No. Am I sexist? No. Nick Cho is full of shit. End of the story. <laughs> Let's enjoy our drinks. You know, that's the extent of their their analysis. I see that And point. that's where I do see their point, too. <laughs> but the problem is that, you know, to internalize it immediately and think to yourself, well, I'm okay, you know, it's basically like saying, I'm not racist, therefore there's no racism. You know, I'm not sexist, therefore there's no sexism. That's not the point. Sometimes it's, it's an institutional thing. Like we said, you know, very often you have to remember, you know, as it pertains to, you know, race and different things in society, that just because you've decided to make it fair today doesn't necessarily mean it's fair. In other words, if, if a certain group has had disadvantages for decades, if not hundreds of years, and now all of a sudden it's a level playing field, that person's still miles and miles behind. You can't then go, now everything's fair, let's move on. I, I, think, you know? I think what you've done, Nick, it's, like, it's really brave to bring this topic up into the public arena because you do put yourself up to be shot at. And I think you know, you, everybody knows you. You're kind of a, you, you, you know, a very prominent person within the specialty community. Uh, the thing that scares me, 
and it worries me of, of what you're saying is it's like that if say for instance this year competition comes along we find in Seattle a female winner everybody just turns around and says oh it's because she's a woman you know and, and I think that would be just so detrimental the other way um, I think it's like I've not I, all I've said is your tweets 140 characters is very small and when I see them right. I'll be honest I kind of go oh jeez come on because like, I, I, I personally don't think it is a sexism. I, 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 but when your argument is, I think there's a bias, I think there's a lean towards, oh, subconsciously, then actually I can start to buy into that and I can start right, to understand right. it. And hopefully the people who have felt like me read, you know, reading the tweets and seeing what you're saying get a chance to listen to this because I'm kind of starting to think now, okay, well, maybe there's something there. Maybe there is something that needs to be addressed. Maybe there's something that we do need to do within competitions. Um, so, yeah, yeah, that's my, uh, my point that was going nowhere, so I'll stop talking. It was a good one. I hope that, you know, I hope it comes across, you know, I feel passionate about this stuff. It's not because, oh, I've found a flaw, like I can't wait to jump up and down and let everyone know all these problems that I'm so good at identifying. No, I, I'm talking about these things because I care deeply about them. I care deeply about the people involved. And you know, I think that especially as it pertains to the barista competitors and, and all the good things that the barista competition is able to do, that you know, I, we want better. We want it to be better, and it can be better, and... That's it. That's where that's where my motivation comes from, um, and there. And I appreciate everything you're saying. Uh, there is, I, I'm afraid. The thing I'm most afraid of about bringing these things up is that people who I care deeply about, who are my friends, think that I am, you know, trying to ruin their jobs or ruin their livelihood or or anything like that. And you know, to be honest, some people need to move on and stop doing what they're doing. And that's been true. For years, and some of those people have moved on, and then the new people have taken the place and sort of assumed a similar sort of role. You know, I've been involved in these things at a pretty high level since I don't know, oh seven, I guess. And um, I just want better for for everybody because that way it's more sustainable and it's better for everyone who's participating. Tying into what you said earlier about a, a norm being created, and I suppose taking the shift away from from the, the person it, itself and towards the coffee. Uh, one thing that I've seen that, um, happen over the years that I myself would be concerned about is, uh, I suppose, p- a norm being created within specialty coffee of how things should be done. That, like, we as an industry do it this way. Uh, and that absolutely boils my piss. Like, that if you do things a certain way, it's like y- y- you could put something on Twitter and instantly you have a hundred people saying, no, we don't do it that way. We don't do it that way. And I'm like, I don't owe you people a duty of care. You know, we, we, we inhabit the same industry, but I don't owe you a duty of care. You don't screw up my toilets. Why should I do what you tell me what to do? Uh, and one of these things, and although it's a wonderful talk and I have huge respect for him, and for that reason, he won't mind me saying it, I hope. Uh, I watched Matt Perger's talk on Tamper Tantrum uh, that he did in Asia, which I think everybody should watch. Um, and uh, I can't remember which city it was in. There was four cities. Taipei. In Taipei. Taipei, yeah. So, and at the end of his talk, uh, Matt said that, I think at this stage, all grinder manufacturers and the industry as a whole have agreed that, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, obviously, uh, that uh, at this stage, we all understand that a unimodal grind profile uh, of even gr- grind size is the way forward for espresso. Uh-huh. 
and that's we we all agree that and that's what we're trying to develop and that's that's kind of that's boxed off 100% we're doing this and I was sitting there going I didn't I didn't agree <laughs> to this no like I missed this um and oh, we had a re- we had up- an email, Colin. We sent an email round to everybody. Did you not get it? <laughs> but no, like, and I know that that you as well are someone who 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 thinks passionately about fines, and I, I love the fines. And although I I often have this thing in my head, especially I don't love with, the fines. Well, well, they have a role to play, and that's espresso in my mind. Hey. And I, I want espresso to have that. That muddledness, and I, I'm not sure I buy into this 100% clarity of unimodal grind profile espresso, and I want to be allowed to do that. I'd like to be stuck in my way, to a certain extent. I mean, I think that there's, like, you say, like you're saying, I mean, there's a, there's a diversity of beverage profiles, of drink profiles that you know, people enjoy, and there are certain ones that we can say, you know, that are low quality and still people enjoy them. You know, one of my favorite things that I came up with many years ago is, you know, we can say, you know, there okay, there are people who really get a derive a lot of pleasure and really love in a sexual way to get kicked in the crotch. <laughs> there are people who really enjoy getting their testicles smashed by someone's foot or punched in the dick. We can <laughs> I'm going to ignore that you just said it. <laughs> you know, have to say someone, it once. Come on. Oh, you lined it up for me. Someone is allowed. Huh? You lined it up for me. It's not fair. Yes, I'm sorry. You I, did. I, 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 you're you right. So to, to, finish, to finish the thought, you know, people are allowed to like that. And we are also allowed to say that that is not a good thing to do at the same time. You know, it's actually okay. And so, you know, there's certain things that are, can be about quality and there's certain things that are about preference. And those t- things don't have to be in alignment whatsoever. And so in that way, I mean, it's interesting. I don't know what you guys think. You know, that, that Matt Perger style espresso, if you can call it that, um, he obviously didn't invent it. And, you know, no one in particular did. But that particular trend, you know, that, that you're seeing, and I see that a lot here in San Francisco, I actually, you know who I point the finger at first and foremost for that is actually George Howell. George Howell was the first place that I experienced an espresso like that with somebody saying over and over again that this is what espresso should, should and could taste like and not this syrupy, heavy, viscous thing that other people were still, you know, really excited about. And, you know, the, the thing that I reflected on then was if you really think about it, those coffees uh, that are of that style, they really much more emulate the values we enjoy in a filter-brewed coffee, just in a more condensed version of it. Yeah. Whereas I think for people who feel differently, espresso is a, actually a completely different thing than brewed coffee. Like It doesn't resemble it hardly at all, except for the fact that we know it comes from the same kind of bean. I, um, I, still, I think I, that that's... Sorry, go ahead. I just think that's the that's the big sort of dividing line. And if you think about it in those terms, it's not really that surprising that we are where we are today. You know, clarity and a certain type of balance and a certain type of sweetness, but you know, acidity forward and but again, that clarity sort of idea being so of value versus, you know, people who want that that heavy syrupy 
you know, kind of like rough, some sometimes rough, but f- fundamentally more like a little bit different. And then it, you, again, there's different profiles. Even beyond that, there are people who like a little bit more dark roasted style and different sort of styles. You know, Peter Giuliano pointed this out to me years ago. You have to remember that all coffee, all coffee at its core is an acquired taste. So it really means that what kind of taste you acquire really has a lot to do with, you know, your circumstance and where you are and when and who you got your first coffees from and such and such. You know, it's you can't everyone. I, I, this is a, obviously an assumption, but a, a safe one. I mean, everyone likes strawberries. Everyone liked a strawberry the first time. No one had to acquire a taste for strawberries because it's sweet and it has a certain kind of flavor. That's just what, you know, we're physiologically, objectively built to enjoy. Coffee is not like that. Coffee is an acquired taste. And so it's it's no wonder that there's a diversity of of camps as far as like the profiles are concerned. And so, you know, if you want to be in that unimodal sort of narrow grind profile range where it's all about clarity and it's a certain kind of sort of thing, like that's fine. I think that it's discounting. Not only is it discounting a lot of other flavor profiles, it's also discounting a lot of other, the way that coffee, uh, coffee brewing happens, um, especially for filter coffee. Um, you know, I, I, I can, like the the didding grinders for instance make a lot of fines um i don't have a didding grinder i used to and i would say that the didding grinders did a better job with batch brewed coffee yeah with our like one gallon one and a half gallon batch brew than the malconi guatemala that i have here right now um it makes more fines well then am i am i where am i wrong yeah where am i wrong there well because the fines serve a certain function they serve a certain function in a batch brewed coffee that is different from, say, an espresso, or even different still from when you do a, a single uh, cup pour over. Um, you just have to think a little bit more about. Yeah. Yeah, I still associate. I, I, personally, I, I, that that style of espresso, I still associate with with John Gordon. Uh, John Gordon was was playing with EK forty trees and espresso. I'd say a good twelve, if not twenty four months before that stage, and himself and James are the ones that were encouraging me to buy one of them but they I, I always hark back to a phrase that David Walsh put on his now defunct blog um, where he said he was talking a bit about uh, sieving fines and having this the unimodal grind profile and he said somebody suggested that you get more complexity actually it might have been Steve uh, saying that you, you, you might you get more complexity with with some more of those fines and different grind, uh, grind size in there and Dave responded, and it, this echoes around my head ever since. David responded by saying that you could argue a swimming pool is more complex if it has a turd in it. Uh, <laughs> which is, is a... Which is, uh, yeah, I, I, I like, only Dave can come up with things like that. And, and that's Especially the in that, his deadpan delivery, it's brilliant. Yeah, yeah, and Dave is like, I, I love Dave, and he's, he's incredibly clever, uh, but he's also hugely intimidating like hugely intimidating like he says stuff to me sometimes and i'll disagree and i'll just go i'll nod and go yeah yeah that's right and it's it it, it makes me kind of shiver inside where i'm like am i allowed to disagree with this am i allowed to have some fines i i suggest our we pull ratios in the shop at about two to one now and i keep every now and again i'll pull myself an espresso in the training room at about one five five and they're like whoa what are you doing that for that's wrong you know what I mean? And I'm like, it makes me angry. I'm like, taste it. And don't taste it expecting what you expect. 
taste it expecting this, this, and this, you know? But that idea of fines adding complexity was a certain kind of, uh, it was a certain conventional wisdom from years ago that bimodal adds complexity idea was a theory or a hypothesis that had been thrown around within conventional wisdom for years in coffee. It doesn't mean that that's actually true. And if it's not true, it doesn't mean that fines or that bimodal have no function and have no value. It just means maybe that the thing that you thought that you liked is actually not that thing that you thought it was, but it was actually this other element. You know, for me, it's, it's about when fines slow down the flow of the water through the bed. Simple as that. Yeah, and when I, they slow it down, you get, you get more, you know, contact through the rest of the, the, the bed. And therefore, actually, you can grind your coffee a little bit coarser as a result and get a different sort of extraction of the bulk and the peak of your, uh, your grind profile and get a different sort of extraction profile altogether. Are those fines a good thing? Actually, no. You know, we could design a basket or a brewing method in a different way or change the, change the geometry that would accomplish a lot of the same things. But we don't have that right now. And so, you know what? The fines, like, actually do a respectable job. You know, it's, it's that kind of stuff that where, you know, when people dismiss things outright, it's really, it really resembles a certain kind of religious zealotry more than anything else. I... I... That's exactly, I think, the point I was trying to make back in the day when Dave said there was a turd floating around in my swimming pool. Was that, you know, <laughs> there the, was, incidentally, though. There was, yeah. But, you know, the brewers that we have at our disposal are, are not designed for that, you know, uniform grind. And having something that was able to change the way that he brewed for me was giving me a cup that I preferred more than when I was sieving the fines, getting, getting, sieving the fines out and getting to a more. Yeah, unified grind. I wasn't enjoying the coffee as much, and that's ultimately what we're all trying to do: is enjoy our coffee a little bit more. But like, even even within the basket itself, if you say that like the fi- the small ones are extracting more than the big ones, um, which okay, as a hypothesis, it makes sense. I'm not sure that it, it maybe it has been proved. I haven't read anything that, that has shown that like. Uh, 100% has been proved. But at the other side, you could also argue that the, the coffee at the top of the basket is extracting more than the bottom because by the time the fluid gets to the bottom of the basket, it's already got coffee in it. So then the osmotic potential of that liquid has dropped because there's there's already coffee in it. You know what I mean? But that's a kind of a neither here yeah. nor there argument. We're going to talk about the fines because we can physically sieve them out and, and see that. Does that make sense? Like There's so much happening in there that I just... I, I, I don't know we have the authority to, 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 uh, to rule it out at this stage. Yeah, well, one thing it does do, it gives us consistency, but it rules out our, you know, the, the differences that we all like. Um, and, and just having the, the, this rule is the rule. Like, we try to do it way too much, uh, and I, I'm, kind of, I'm quite happy with my grinder doing what it does at the moment. It's fine. And particularly for, I'm sort of, why, is it that, why is it that so many of the rules that we come up with result in spending more and more money on equipment? No. <laughs> That's a very good point. Okay, generally, we've talked for quite a long time. Uh, you made it past the 20-minute stage, Nick. Well done, so you must be commended for that. <laughs> um, I did brief, uh, for those of you that weren't listening in my front room earlier, uh, we'll brief <laughs> Nick by saying that if, if we cut it off at 20 minutes, then he'd failed, and he could take that personally. So well done for doing that. Uh, thank you so much for being uh, a guest on here. Um, it's, uh, yeah, the two little fanboys inside myself and Steve. I mean that metaphorically. 
um, are <laughs> actually um, we are delighted that you've done this and uh, yeah, we're huge fans of you and, and what you do and best of luck with the shops I well, hope I'm, to come and take a selfie very soon well I'm th- big fans of both of you so keep up the good well, work thanks Nick will you, uh, will you come back on another time as well well I'm sure this will raise lots of uh, conversation and I just get to listen to you talk because I don't get the port filter anymore so will you come back on if if I, if you don't find me, if you don't read the whatever San Francisco news that there was a Korean American guy bludgeoned to death with an EK forty five under the back of his shop after this, then sure, most definitely. And one of my biggest regrets was I never came to Murky, so I do need to come to the new shop. So uh, yeah, I have to do come that. On come on out, come on we out, have to make it happen. Excellent. Well, thank you all for listening to three guys talk about women's rights and uh, we'll uh, we'll see you all next time. <laughs> Over and out.